welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series four and episode three. The topic today is disciples as salt and light. We are, of course, in the Sermon on the Mount series, uh, which is series four. And we've moved from series three, where we spent a lot of time looking at the early ministry of Jesus in and around Galilee, principally, which was a long series of exciting events, stories of healings, deliverance from evil, remarkable teaching, proclamation of God's kingdom, huge crowds coming to Jesus and great popularity and great reputation. We also saw during that time a couple of other themes. One was the rising opposition of the religious authorities based in Jerusalem who were beginning to investigate Jesus and beginning to question him and beginning to be very concerned and beginning to think they're going to need to get rid of him because he's a threat to their establishment. So that was taking place then. And we've also seen the development of the gathering of disciples. And that came to a conclusion just before the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus appointed the 12 apostles. So now in the Sermon on the Mount, we're looking at the character and lifestyle of Christian disciples. We've looked so far at Luke's teaching in Luke chapter 6 on the blessings and woes, the blessings of true discipleship, despite all the suffering it may involve, and the woe or the trouble or the suffering that will come on people who are only nominal Christians, Christians in name only but don't live the lifestyle of Christians. So we discussed that. And then in the last episode, uh, we looked at the Beatitudes, what are famously called the Beautiful Attitudes. And we spent a little bit of time just focusing on the fact that Jesus is very, very interested in character and inner attitudes. This is an important consideration because in many religious traditions, what matters most is what you do. It's your actions. It's your outward actions. How moral are you? How religious are you? How good are your personal ethics, your family life, your sexual morality, your giving to the poor? All these type of things are considered very, very important. But very rarely is the inner life and motivation looked at very closely. But Jesus starts from the inside rather than from the outside. He's looking at the heart and the formation of character. So the Beatitudes are the formation of character. And so they are very appropriate to have at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Character first and actions will follow. Character comes from a changed heart, changed attitudes as the Holy Spirit works within us. I'm sure many of you will recognise this process going on in your Christian lives, whether you're mature Christians or whether you're new Christians, you'll recognise this. And if you're looking in at this series and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, one of the things that I want to encourage you to think about is the fact that Jesus isn't just asking you to follow a set of rules and regulations. He's asking you to follow a new lifestyle that comes from changed attitudes within. So we ended the study of the Beatitudes by my suggestion 
that you might just want to focus on one of them and read it uh, regularly, meditate on it, think about it, maybe for a week or more, and ask the Holy Spirit to help you to develop a more appropriate attitude of heart in that particular area. We now move on to a short teaching where Jesus uses two images or metaphors or examples or analogies to explain what the function of Christians is supposed to be like in their society or in their community. He uses two very common examples of aspects of life in his culture to give us examples of the way that Christians should live. So we're going to try and understand what these examples meant in his context and then we're going to try and make some application to ourselves. So could you turn please to Matthew 5 and verses 13 to 16. These are quite well-known verses if you're familiar with the Bible but I'm not sure the meaning is as well-known as the text so we're going to really focus on understanding the meaning. Matthew 5 13. You are the salt of the earth but if the salt loses its saltiness how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Let's look at the first image that Jesus uses, the image of salt. And he says to his disciples, you're the salt of the earth, by which he means the land, the earth as the farming land. You're like salt on the land. I wonder what this could mean. Christians generally have understood this passage to refer to the function of being a preservative, a bit like the function of salt in food, where you haven't got refrigeration, where it preserves it for longer from going off and being inedible. But it's interesting here that Jesus says you are the salt of the earth, of the land. So we're now just going to think for a moment what that could have meant to his contemporaries. And the first thing to say is that salt was a very readily available commodity in ancient Israel for a very simple reason. That there was a natural formation of salt in their area and in their environment. This came about through a unique feature on the eastern side of the country. The River Jordan runs down the eastern side of the land of Israel from the north where there are hills in Lebanon and Mount Hermon and elsewhere. This leads to water coming down into Galilee and forming the Sea of Galilee, the freshwater lake by which Jesus lived at Capernaum 
and on which he sailed on many occasions. The River Jordan then leaves the Sea of Galilee and goes south and then it enters into what we call the Dead Sea which doesn't have any exit. This is stagnant static water that doesn't drain off anywhere. And the Dead Sea is dead because it's filled with salt. It has a hugely high salt percentage in the water, nothing living in that water. And salt deposits appear on the land around the Dead Sea. And modern tourists frequently travel to the Dead Sea for the simple novelty of the fact that you can float on the water, you don't sink because of the amount of salt and the strange composition of the water. So salt was readily available. You could even find it at salt deposits on the land in different places near the Dead Sea. So that's the first thing to think about, a readily available commodity. But what was salt actually used for? Well, Luke has another version of this saying that describes two particular functions of salt in their society. And I think we should take our clue from what Luke says. I'm going to read from Luke 14, verses 34 and 35, where Jesus is commenting on the power of salt and using it as an analogy. Luke 14, verse 34 and 35. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. It is thrown out. This is very interesting because here Jesus specifically describes the function of salt and it's not preservative in food. This is to do with the land. And he says if salt loses its saltiness, in other words, if it loses its appropriate chemical composition, if other things are added in, which frequently happens with the salt deposits from the Dead Sea, by the way, then it's fit neither for the soil nor the manure pile. What was salt used for on the soil? Well, interestingly enough, it was used as a fertilizer. Salt in small quantities is a good fertilizer. In fact, modern chemical fertilizers have significant salts within them. And before they were invented in the Western world, salt was used in agriculture as one of several natural fertilizers and has been done throughout the ages in different societies. So salt here is pictured as a fertilizer. Secondly, it's pictured as for the manure pile, the animal excrement or the human excrement. And salt was applied to manure in order to disinfect it and prevent disease or infection spreading from it. And this was obviously a common use of salt at the time. So we have two functions that Jesus defines here in this short passage in Luke 14, where he's describing the same metaphor 
or image that we have in the Sermon on the Mount. And these two things are fertilizing and disinfecting. So let's reflect on this because this is the core of the meaning. Fertilizing the good and disinfecting the bad. This is a good way of describing the functions of Christians in society. There are many good things in your society and mine. Many things that work well, many things that are beneficial to that society. They'll vary from one country to another, from one region of the world to another. They might be to do with administration or financial structures or healthcare or educational provision. There might be some really good things or some cultural values of care for the poor or the elderly or children. There's all sorts of good things that could be in your society. It might be to do with particular technology that your society has, which is very beneficial to people. And so Jesus is basically saying that the function of Christians is to encourage the good as well as to discourage the bad. Because just as I can say there are many good things in your society, I could also say there are many bad things in your society and also in mine. We have lots of technology, lots of commitment to education and welfare and medicine in my society, but we also have lots of bad things, the breakdown of the family and violence and discrimination against people and all sorts of other things too. Some things are good, some things are less good in our society. And Jesus's point is that Christians will make a contribution to encourage the good and to discourage the bad. If there's going to be violence or sectarianism, we would be seeking to be peacemakers. If there's going to be financial corruption, Christians would be those who would use their influence to resist that. If there are good things that need to be encouraged, like, for example, education. Christians are often at the forefront of education because it develops people, it encourages people, it gives them opportunities. So Christian discipleship will have two significant benefits for any society if Christians are mature and practical and functioning in their faith effectively. They will encourage good things and they will discourage negative things that could undermine that society. Now, you can think of some applications in your society. Obviously, we are thinking about societies and cultures all the way across the world that are very, very different from each other. So you can think of some applications for you which might be very different from the applications that I would make for myself in my own country. That doesn't matter. That's good. The gospel works in many different cultures, but it has the same positive effects as Christians are true disciples and take their responsibilities in their society seriously. So I'd encourage you to see that as a significant part of uh, what you can contribute in your society. You may think, well, I have very, very little influence. Well, Use the influence you have with just a few people, with your family, with your friends, in your workplace, with the prayers that you pray for people, with your attitude towards people and with your witness to Christ. The second image or metaphor that Jesus uses here 
is that of light. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. Now, lighting in those days came by candles or by oil lamps. This is long before electricity, of course. And those candles and oil lamps were very, very important. And Jesus says that a town or a city built on a hill cannot be hidden. That's very true. And in fact, Jerusalem was one of those towns or cities. The city of Jerusalem was built on a hill and was visible from some distance away. A good example of that saying. But a lamp is put on a stand when it's in a house. Houses in those days very often had one main room. And the main room was the one which would be lit up in the evening if you were short of candles or oil lamps. People would gather in the main room. And it's very important that the light is as prominent as possible. Raise it up, put it on a table, put it on a stand. Make sure the light goes as far as it can because there's very little light. And we have very little resources in that kind of society for lighting. And so this is the analogy that Jesus uses. Christians light up the room. Christians provide light in society. How do they do that? By their moral integrity and by their saving message. It's the character of Christians that brings light to people, as it were, and it's the message that Christians bring that brings light to them. Just as we are called to be the light of the world, so in a very specific sense, according to John, Jesus is the light of the world. John 8 and verse 12. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. That's a passage we're going to study later on in this study of the life of Jesus. I am the light of the world. You are the light of the world. Isaiah 49 verse 6 describes the servant of the Lord, which is Jesus prophetically, as being a light for the Gentiles, a light for all the nations of the world. And so the life of Christians is supposed to bring light into dark places. That's basically the point of what Jesus is saying. And we can easily underestimate the significance of Christians and their life. We are potentially very influential to people around us. We bring insight, that's what light does, you can see things more clearly. We bring perspective, we bring truth as we bring the gospel truth or some ethical or moral truth to people. And that provides light for people around us. 
Now, this, of course, only happens if Christians are living a life of integrity themselves. And this is what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Some examples of what that integrity means are to be studied very shortly. They're in the passages that follow shortly after this one, where Jesus very specifically describes the character and the lifestyle of Christians with respect to a number of particular moral issues. And if you connect that with this saying, as we live out those moral principles, then we provide examples for people around which should enlighten them, should encourage them to follow suit and perhaps even to follow the Jesus who we serve as his disciples. These are very short, pithy statements. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. And we might think, goodness me, I don't feel like that. I feel very insignificant. I feel very unqualified. I don't feel my life is fully in order yet. Well, those are reasonable things to feel. But I want to encourage you to see these sayings as part of this wider Sermon on the Mount. And when you've come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and maybe you've made some changes in your life as a result of it, and you're more committed to that process of discipleship, then you can come back to these sayings and say with a little bit more confidence, yes, I am supposed to be salt on this earth. I am supposed to be light in this world. So as we bring this study to an end, I just want to bring some final reflections and learning points. There is a real risk that Christians can lose their impact on the world if they compromise on discipleship. We need to get away from the idea that Christianity is like joining a club or just joining a family or getting a ticket to heaven or a ticket to a comfortable life. Now, you may never have thought any of those things, but they're popular ideas. And in the Western world, for example, we're very influenced by a philosophy you might call individualism, that every individual has a right to happiness and they need to find their happiness in whatever way suits them as long as they don't harm other people. That's the way a lot of people think. And if you take that idea and you put it into Christian life, the idea becomes that you get out of Christianity what you want to make yourself comfortable and happy. Jesus speaks in a completely opposite manner. He says basically to us, I've redeemed you. I've called you to follow me. You're sinners. I've forgiven you. I've given you eternal life. I've given you the Holy Spirit. Now, come follow me. Serve me. Serve my kingdom. Extend my kingdom. Therefore, change your life to become an active disciple, giving attention to all the details of your life. And then you'll be influential. So there is a risk of losing impact if we compromise on discipleship, which is why the Sermon on the Mount is such a very important part of the Gospels and the New Testament and should be central in our studies if we are seriously seeking to follow Jesus Christ.
Salt speaks primarily of our moral influence in society. And light speaks primarily of pointing to Jesus Christ. We are actually pointing to the greater light of the world, because as we read in John 8 verse 12, Jesus himself ultimately is that light. So we're signposts to Jesus by witnessing for him and sharing our faith in him. Now, in conclusion, we need to go to verse 16, which is a great encouragement. Matthew 5 verse 16, just to read it again to you. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Here we see an interesting pattern that Jesus identifies. Many people are drawn to Christ and faith through the good deeds or the good lives of Christians. The example of Christian faith lived out individually in family and in community influences people and draws them to active faith, enabling us to witness to them. This has been the pattern all the way throughout church history. People are drawn by the good witness of Christians. And Jesus predicts that some of them will glorify your Father in heaven. They can only do that by having active belief in Jesus Christ and being born again and coming into the kingdom of God themselves. So I want to encourage you with that thought. Our lifestyle, our good deeds, our integrity have more of an influence on other people than you realise. And very often they watch you a lot and might say very little until one day the story comes out and they've noticed the way that you have lived. That certainly happened to me with people who've become believers after observing carefully to see, is there integrity here? And I encourage you, let there be integrity throughout your life. Let the Sermon on the Mount be a living reality for you. And I invite you to uh, join with us as we continue this study in the next episode. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.